Hello and welcome to the Tech UK podcast. This week we're going to be looking at drones. My name is Julian McGugan. I head up telecom spectrum and satellite at Tech UK. And drones is one of the new fascinating things that we've been looking at over the last couple of years. Now, I know a lot of you are probably associating drones with crashing into planes and disrupting flights. But actually, there's a whole bunch of things that drones are doing to help all of us, some of which you can see, some of which you can't. And my guests are going to be talking about those. So I'm going to be talking about the use of drones and how they can help raise productivity, help save lives, help make life better for us, even find plastic for us on beaches, with Sam Nixon from Startup Meteomatics and Elaine White, who heads drones for PwC. So welcome, Elaine White um, of PwC. I'm delighted you can join us this uh, wonderful sunny morning in London. So you lead the drones team at PwC. Can you tell us something about your background team, what it's doing, how in fact the team came into being? Why did PwC even form a drones team? Good morning, Julian, and thank you for the invite to come and speak here this morning. Um, For me, a bit of background. I started my life in the Air Force. I served for 20 years as an airworthiness and safety engineer. Um, I left there and went to the dark side of industry seven years ago. And in my time here in PwC, I realized that there was an opportunity for us to form an advisory service for our clients to use drones technology. Why is that? Because drones, an eye in the sky, a different way to view assets, a different way to collect data. And ultimately, we in PwC dealing in our deal in our client data. So this is just a new way for us to be able to collect that data, analyze it and be able to give our clients a fresh perspective on their business, which ultimately allows them to make different business decisions. Fantastic stuff. And for many people in the industry, the moment they realized that drone scene had really arrived was last year when you launched your, your drones report looking at the value drones can add to the UK economy. I'm delighted to say you launched it at a drone futures conference here last June. Um, Could you tell us about that report? Because everyone still references it about 18 months later. What were the things you learned? What were the most amazing things that came out of it? I was very aware when we decided to undertake the study that there were lots of global figures that told us about the impact that drones could potentially have moving forward. And I wanted to get a real sense and bound that to what impact it could have on the UK, which is why I requested and commissioned this report from our economists and PwC. And I think what surprised all of us was just the sheer size of the figures. We deliberately went for a 2030 timescale because we can see that within the next 12 years, as was when we launched the report, there's a substantial amount of change that could take place across the market to allow us to get to those figures. And we were quite surprised to see that from this economic study, we estimate the UK worth of the drones economy could be as much as 42 billion by 2030. 42 billion, that's nearly 2% of GDP, with as much as a 16 billion productivity savings. Now, clearly, this is an economic analysis, a macro analysis from the top down. It did follow the Green Book and was um, uh, rigorously assured by government to make sure it followed the best procedures and practices to make sure we got to those figures. But what does this mean from, from ourselves as a drone industry? Well, I think it created an interest in a number of questions of how do we actually get to that figure? 
this is this looks like a great opportunity for us as UK PLC to drive forward this new technology, to create a new industry, to make the productivity savings that are so frequently talked about um, in the press. But what do we have to do to enable that to happen? And I summarised it in three different areas. I felt we needed to see an advancement of technology. We need to see an expansion of regulation. But probably and almost most importantly, we need to see increased social acceptance with this technology if we want to truly realise the benefits that it's capable of delivering. Well, that's fantastic. But I'm conscious of the social acceptance bit. We all know about Gatwick. That was exactly the opposite of social acceptance. And of course, you commissioned at the PwC some research recently looking at public reception of Jones with six months on or so from Gatwick. I have to say the results aren't particularly good reading if we're going to achieve those amazing figures for 2030, are they? Well, I think it's not. The figures weren't surprising to us. So if we use the technology in a search and rescue capacity, for example, where there is a self-evident risk to life, then it's not surprising that greater than 80% of the general public are supportive of drones being used in that use case. And we are seeing more and more the emergency services are using drone technology to be able to give them the reach, the eyes in the sky, to be able to track and find people who may be lost, for example, up in the mountains, and more and more in a search and rescue capacity. So I think from that side, it, it told us what we would have guessed was the case. Perhaps stepping back on the less popular use cases, um, only 26% of those surveyed would support the use of drones for parcel delivery. And I think when we uh, talk about the use of drones, people automatically jump to that position. When actually here and now and today, the use cases are much less obtrusive than what we might consider from um, seeing them operating autonomously around the sky and doing that type of delivery role. Um, so I, I think the most mature use case at the moment is in filming. It's just a lot of the time we don't realise that. So a couple of years ago, the Blue Planet series, we saw how a lot of those images were captured using drone technology. And they were, um, for us as viewers, that gave us a wonderful new insight into how those creatures lived in their local habitat. And the advantage of drones is they, people filming could be sat there waiting for weeks and months on end. And then when the opportunity arose, they could deploy this technology instantly and get that aerial view that gave us, the viewers, that fresh perspective. You can see how if you try to use manned aviation or some form of stage, if you put that up, how obtrusive that would have been for three months and, and clearly cost prohibitive as well to be able to do that. So in the filming industry, we're seeing more and more, and we just don't realise it, that drones are being used. But equally, in business, um, surveying and inspection are probably the biggest use cases and take up at this moment in time. And the survey that you referred to, uh, the business respondents that we had, only 33% felt that drones were being used effectively in their business at this moment in time. So there's plenty of opportunity for growth there. Having worked for the BBC, I have to share, say I share your enthusiasm for the use of drones and some of the shots that are produced are amazing, even if the viewers don't actually know they're coming off a drone. 
if we look at the public safety elements that you've mentioned, where people know drones have been used, but in, in ways that everyone's going to support, you, as you say, you kind of expect the vast majority of people would support that. There presumably is a sort of grey area of things which are sort of public safety, sort of not. People don't use drones have been used. But if it's explained to them, so I'm thinking of things along the lines of if a drone is capturing footage from a motorway where an accident has happened, there are no police eyes on the, and, and the footage has been fed back and a command centre can take decisions there and then. Do you deploy a uh, medivac helicopter, this sort of thing? Those are the kind of uses that, if it's explained what drones are doing. You're right to highlight the, <clears throat> excuse me, the wonderful examples of the emergency services there. And um, the motorway road traffic accident is one that I've used as sort of creating a vision of where we might like to see ourselves as a society in the future. And you could envisage a position where drones sit in a box spaced down the motorway and then when an accident occurs they can respond instantly sending that live feedback to as you say the control center so that the response is quicker and better and it's better because they know exactly what it is that they're responding to and what will be the benefits well if anybody's injured they will be treated more appropriately in a shorter period of time and for those who are held up in the accident, there's an opportunity for it to be cleared quicker and for the traffic to flow again. So there's lots of advantages we can see in that scenario. And, and I think that's the ultimate for me in, in smart most way of the future is having that ability to capture those live images, potentially using drones in a box. Mm, I agree. I share your enthusiasm for those. Mm. Um, turning to industry, I mean, your research showed that most people in industry think that drones aren't being used to their full potential. What are the barriers to that? Is it cultural? Is it regulation? I think sometimes it's awareness. I think there is a sense that drones are and have been a bit of a toy in the past and therefore you have to demonstrate and it's not the drone themselves of course it's the sensor and it's not the sensor it's what you then analyze with that data and then it's how you share that data we think of the drone value chain in four buckets and we are very much focused on how you're sharing that data back so that it can be interpreted in a meaningful way in a business so i think some industries have experimented with drones, but they have literally just had a drone with a camera, which limits the value that can be driven forward. Some companies don't want to be the first ones to move forward within their industry. So it's about identifying those who are brave, who say, yes, we are absolutely going to take this first step forward. And as an example, we're working with a UK company who has 21 sites and they are using drones now to manage their assets. And we worked with them to deliver a proof of concept to show what value could be achieved. And it is 65% cheaper and 83% quicker than their traditional method of identifying what's wrong with those buildings and inspecting those buildings. Not only is that are those metrics compelling, actually what they then receive is of such a better quality and a record. It's not something with a clipboard, it's not getting onto a cherry picker, it's not working at height, it's actually collecting the images and depositing them in a way that can be shared with multiple stakeholders, that they can be accessed and interrogated 
where decisions of investment in that portfolio can then be made on a much more accurate method than has been used in the past. So what I think we need to be able to galvanise sectors to be able to take up this technology is firstly for it to be used correctly, so not just a drone with a camera, but actually it's about the data analysis and how you then share it back. But also we need to be sharing these use cases so that people are aware of the opportunity that they present. As with AI and machine learning, it sounds like drones are actually challenging the way businesses use data and share data even within the same business. I think it's it, I think it's really valuable that you've mentioned other forms of um, technology. There. Drones is just a way to collect data. It is a tool. And I, I think of it very much as it's just one way of collecting data because actually it's how you then combine that with other information and how you use other tools. Um, undoubtedly, Internet of Things is a big factor here. When you've collected that data and you can eventually have enough that you can get to the point of potential machine learning, artificial intelligence applied to it, then that's when you're really going to extrapolate the value. Um, I would like to see uh, uh, get to a position where you are comparing and contrasting the data you collected this week with the data you collected last week so that you're always comparing that baseline and, uh, and then responding to the changes that have taken place because it's that level of automation that allows the real productivity savings to be achieved. Absolutely. In fact, it's also worth bearing in mind, we've highlighted in a few of the examples you've given, there are healthy and safety examples as well here. It's not just productivity. If people aren't using cherry pickers, if you can send drones into has-care environments, there are yes. health and safety benefits that come from this. And, and I think that's why we've seen uh, drones being used so much in the oil and gas sector, because that's where safety is absolutely paramount and drives every aspect of their business. And so if you're going to inspect the stack of an oil and gas platform, then you are using ropes and ladders, you're swinging off, you're having to switch down the asset as well, so it's not operating. And you can see the inherent risk and cost, productivity cost, of um, having to switch it down. If you're using a drone, of course, none of that applies. And you can operate potentially from a boat some distance away from the platform and you can get that drone up close to the asset, capturing the data that you can then analyse on a slower time and from a safer environment. And multiple people can analyse it rather than just the handful of people who are up close to that particular asset. So I think it's not surprising that that's a sector that we're seeing using this technology as a prime form of inspection now. It's fascinating stuff. And having seen pictures of people hanging off oil rigs, I have to say I completely agree, take those humans out of that dangerous situation, replace it with a flying robot. Absolutely. What are the most exciting and inspirational uses of drones you've seen, not necessarily in the UK? I think I just want to pick up on your last bit of a flying robot. And that's actually, it's absolutely what... A drone is a form of robotics and a subset of that. So um, I think um, if you view it in that way, somebody said last week to me actually that um, uh, there's never any successful successful robots because they always get called something different. 
once they become successful. So autonomous vehicles, for example, when really they're form of robots. But that's just an aside. For me, the most inspirational use cases of drones are when there is a risk to life and it is supporting the efforts to reduce that risk to life. So on a grand scale, um, when there's been some form of humanitarian disaster and you have to plan how it is that you are going to take in your disaster relief, um, that is when a drone can be highly beneficial and capturing where the safe routes are for travel, for passage, to be able to get that out as quick as possible to those people who are in need. Perhaps from, from a smaller example, more tactical example, in Rwanda they're using uh, drones to deliver blood to remote areas to again save lives. These are wonderful examples of where you can see when the communications network is brought down and is not predictable or dependable in some way or another, actually being able to reach up into the sky to be able to collect images, insights, or in the Rwanda example, to transport goods, it's a really brilliant use case of tech for good, of drones for good. Even in the developed world, people might look at what Zipline is doing and saying, can we do some of that here? Can't we use drones in delivering blood or medicines here? So I think about that when um, I consider the 26% of the population who are supportive of, of drones being used for parcel delivery. And then I compare that to the search and rescue example. And I think if actually the parcel that was being delivered was medicine to somebody who's unable to reach the chemist to collect it for themselves, then I think we will be far more accepting of that as a method of transporting. I completely agree. And I mm. certainly hope that that's the case. It probably needs a bit of explaining to people, though, exactly that's what they mean. This isn't about Amazon. It's not necessarily about delivering pizzas to your bedroom window either. And that's where the Nesta Flying High Challenge is interesting, because that was very much looking at how we do urban um, tech for good. So one of those examples they were using was uh, the transport within an urban area, which is very complex to be able to do, of medical products, results, whatever it is that needs to be transported between hospitals. Um, and that's where they're trying to drive forward the technology in, in that way to show how it can benefit particularly urban communities. Fantastic stuff. So looking forward, another year, another two years, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think here in the UK, you, what do you think is going to be the most amazing things that we see drones being used for, if indeed regulation allows it? So I, I talk about the drone spectrum. So we've, if we take the far left, we've got the filming, the inspection, the surveying, which has already taken place because that can happen within the current regulation because you're often flying over your own assets or in an environment where clearances can be achieved. And then I think further to the right, we have the drones delivery that we spoke about. And I think seeing them used more and more to be able to help those in society who perhaps struggle to get out and, and on a mobility perspective to be able to go and get what it is they want, especially at short notice, then that could be a real beneficial 
perhaps on the far right, we might even guess ourselves to urban air mobility of some description. Um, but I, I think we are well beyond a decade plus before we can see um, drones being used in that capacity. So I, I think from a society perspective, when we have a vision of how we want to see this technology being used, we need to unpick what principles we want to work towards. And for me, one of the most important ones is it has to be more environmentally friendly than the existing system that it's replacing. So we did do some work with a client to show if they use drone technology on their construction site, that actually there would be reduced carbon as a result of the frequency and number of visits that had to take place because the data would be accessible remotely, potentially from standard working offices. And that's the type of nuances and benefits that using drone technology could deliver. And when we accumulate that up, that's where we can see the more significant benefit for society. So for me, the exciting aspect is about being able to articulate those benefits and for society to begin to see them and accept them moving forward. Which is absolutely fascinating and a great way to end. Thank you so much for coming in, Elaine, and sharing your time and your views. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here in Tech UK, Sam, on a lovely sunny morning in November in uh, in London at Tech UK. So I am Julian McGugan. I head up the Communications Infrastructure Programme at Tech UK, which, despite its title, actually looks after drones as well. A source of great, great interest. Fantastic uh, bunch of companies in this country trying to do great things for enterprise for, for, with drones. And Sam, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and the company you're working for? Uh, will do. So, Julian, firstly, thanks very much for the invitation to uh, to come and take part in the podcast because um, we're very, very keen to promote drones and their use cases globally. So I'm COO of a company called Meteomatics AG and Meteomatics is a Swiss-based company. We've uh, been around since 2012. Mm -hmm. So we're a kind of we're moving out of the startup phase now into the sort of high growth phase. We have our technical team based in St. Gallen in Switzerland, which is about 45 minutes out of Zurich by train. We then have a sales office in Berlin, in Germany. And more recently, we set up a, a UK company uh, centred out of the uh, a Science Park in Exeter. So we're uh, just across the road from the UK Met Office. Ah, that's a particular relevance to you, of course. Do you want to tell people what it is that Meteomatics is actually doing? Absolutely. So Meteomatics is a private weather business. So we take in uh, weather data, global weather data, from national Met services such as UK Met Office, uh, NOAA in the US, Meteo Swiss, and so on. Uh, we also take in uh, weather data from other scientific institutes, so places like the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting in Reading. Taking, when we take those data in, we, uh, we attach them to NASA's 90-metre digital terrain model, the SRTM. And that means that the weather forecasts that we're then able to deliver back out to our customers take things like altitude into account, which becomes hugely relevant when you're operating drones. We have a, an industrial strength API and we deliver services to hundreds of customers globally where they can slice and dice weather data by any lat long and any time series, which makes us unique in the market in that our API can deliver weather data for historical, 
for nowcast, for forecast, and then for monthly and seasonal. So you might think that was quite enough to keep us busy. But at the same time, as we set the company up, we approached every drone company in the world and we asked them if they would be kind enough to work with us so that we could put our highly calibrated instruments through the lower atmosphere, so ground to three kilometers. And they all said, no, you are a niche use case. We're not interested, go away. So because we're a German Swiss company, we buckled down and we got engineering and we now uh, have designed, developed, manufacture and operate what we call the family of Meteo drones. So we have flying weather stations effectively. Uh, we've flown these for intercomparison trials with organizations like NOAA, so the US National Met Service and also the UK Met Office and other international Met services. And after two years of intercomparison trials, we asked NOAA what they thought of our drones. And they said, well, we'd like to buy some. So we thought that was a pretty good starting point. Uh, moving on from there since, we've also found a, a raft of military use cases as well. So we're supporting uh, a project at the moment with the Department of Defense out of the US. And we're now gonna be delivering drones. In fact, in a month's time, Julian, we will be flying officially from the ground to six kilometers above ground level. And we'll have things like rotor de-icing where we've even been invited by FAA to speak at their symposiums because we've stood on the shoulders of other people's great science, but we've actually developed and operationalized a full propeller heating system as well. So we're able to operate in freezing conditions and near freezing conditions, we're able to operate at very high altitudes, but also we went through the certification process with the Federal Office of Civil Aviation in Switzerland and with SkyGuide, which is air traffic control. And that means we have more BV loss hours than anybody except the military out there in Switzerland. And this is something we very, very much want to bring into the UK and more widely across Europe, as well as the work that we're doing in America. Fantastic. Obviously, you become an accidental drone manufacturer. Completely. Honestly, yes. It was simply we needed a platform to go across the, the, the lower atmosphere. Because the... With, so let me have a little nerdy moment. So being a weather nerd, loving the weather as we do, we knew that there was a data gap. So we had a use case waiting for us. Uh, most national MET services will operate very sparsely with helium-filled balloons and radio sonde. And those devices take readings across the atmosphere, way higher than six kilometers, way higher than 10. But balloons do what balloons do. So they drift, they're fire and forget. That's very expensive. So for example, in a country like Switzerland, there are only two balloons going up twice a day to sample the atmosphere. And what we, our contention was, and we've now proved this working with Zurich Airport, was that by having a small group of drones, in this case six, so one flying by the runway and five in a 45 kilometer circle around the, the airport, we were able to better forecast fog formation and clearance, icing, thunderstorms, lightning, where there would and would not be snow and visibility. So when you think about the fog formation and clearance, by being able to look upstream and downstream of a weather front, you're able to actually say to guys like the guys operating the airport, well, actually, you don't need to enact the low vision protocol quite when you thought. You can squeeze in another half an hour or an hour flying, which to them is unbelievable. Or equally, you can say, please tell your passengers to stay home because you're going to be 
disappointing them if they come to the airport. So you can imagine that's been exciting, but we've had that peer reviewed. So when we did that um, piece of work, which was actually sponsored by Swiss Airlines as the flag carrying airline and by the airside guys at the airport, um, we also had to work with the aviation forecaster because that's a, an official job, usually done by the National Met Service in each country. And Meteo Swiss have recently published results of our trial that basically say it's a very good idea to fly Meteo drones and get these data, feed them into a hyperlocal forecast because it increases accuracy. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, this is, uh, this is the use of drones that actually has genuine consumer ramifications. You're talking about interruptions potentially to people being able to fly away somewhere. Absolutely, or, or just to increase operational efficiency and give better situational awareness. Because prior to Meteomatics, um, I spent three and a half years working with the board of the Met Office as a consultant. And what I learned about weather and weather data was it touches all of us. It touches each of us either as a consumer, a member of the public, someone who's going to go into a shop and buy something because it's cold or wet or windy or whatever. Um, but equally, uh, unmanned vehicles, planning for transport, running a railway. It's not just limited to those sort of more glamorous airline use cases. It can be, do I need to put more buses on? Can I forecast as TFL to know whether I need to move um, rush hour to the right because it's raining and cold and we've done work so we're not a last mile solution provider we're a weather data company that's what we do and we actually help other weather businesses who deliver last mile solutions who are doing things like big data analytics where the weather data is context for their decisions so we've seen this feeding into almost everything I mean we're, we're working with intelligence companies who are entering, for example, the Lloyd's uh, syndicates for shipping, so maritime insurance, where there is a weather component that applies to, for example, exploring a total loss. Should the insurer be suspicious? Were the crew all right, and did the ship go down, and was there, you know, why did the captain steer the vessel towards a typhoon when everybody else made for port? There's the real live examples that we've seen come alive as we've seen the weather context added to the proprietary knowledge of these companies or these data science teams. We're also powering platforms. So we work, for example, with Kongsberg with a weather component for their Cognify platform. Um, you know, we find more and more that by making data simply available, people consume it into their models. By giving historical data, data scientists can train their models and correlate outcomes with things they've seen happen and whether the weather data shows a signal, a correlation, um, so that when they're then forecasting using our data, they're just simply changing. It's just the changing the time series, they're looking ahead instead of backward. Um, flying the drones has become, I mean, it's also exciting. You know, if we go back to the Zurich airport example, part of the due diligence being done by Meteo Swiss was to put our weather data into their downscale model. So it wasn't, so we had our model operating, which we were able to openly show what our results were. And at the same time, they were able to see what happened with and without our data in their downscale model. And I think for us, that's, um, 
that's very very exciting because it we believe that the the technology that we're developing so we're now developing uh, what we call meteo bases we've just had our first uh, commercial implementation of that in a, in a valley in Switzerland in Ilkraben. We've been controlling the drones from 200 miles away <clears throat> with full permission to do that um, from Fokker and we've been taking atmospheric readings. We've also been for the first time ever using high definition cameras on our drones to build a 3D model of the valley as well and we think that's the future in terms of infrastructure for airports for transportation for logistics for port management and so on is having the meteo bases and the meteo drones running automated missions because then you've you've taken the the pilot out of the loop which quite honestly is quite a large part of the expense when you look at you know running squadrons of drones the sort of uber model actually take the take the driver out of the car and it becomes a lot cheaper and I, I also think there is a, because there's still a place for, for us, there's, it's, it's lovely because we fit into both use cases. Using the fixed infrastructure, you know, I would be so bold as to say, I think it should be critical national infrastructure, to be quite honest. I think, uh, I think it would be good for the CAA and others to have a little chew on that as an idea because we're, we augment what is already available. We don't replace, but we certainly help with things like increasing the accuracy of, of, of radar, identifying where the conditions where the radar isn't picking the things up that it perhaps should be. Um, but equally, because of the data density, we get a much better picture. And if we if we move forward to things like urban air mobility, you know, one of our PhDs was doing a study um, actually for, for his thesis, he was actually downscaling a forecast to 100 meter resolution and what you discover when you start doing these things we you know we have our own HPC cluster we operationally forecast today for Switzerland we have done for the last four years at a one kilometer resolution and we have a desire to do that for the globe so we're in conversation with various parties to try to achieve one kilometer or better for the globe and then drone enable that forecast to give it ground truth why do I think that matters for urban air mobility because the built environment, where there are digital twins all over the world, where people have paid the money to create the digital twin, well, guess what? You need to take into account computational fluid dynamics to understand the impact of the, of the antecedent weather conditions on that built environment. Because if you don't, the drones will not be above your head, they will be on the pavement. And we're great advocates and we've been, we're enjoying now working with some of the leading UTM organizations and we've just come back from um, uh, a symposium in the in the US in New York City where what became obvious was forecasting for the urban canyon as they call it is essential so this mixture of new emerging technologies things like 5g transmitting data and information IOT which has become really very commonplace but the, the sort, almost the fire and forget sensors or the cheaper sensors that you can put on street furniture and then calibration using MET sensors on the drones. So you're able to really understand what the weather is around the city and therefore how that weather is then going to be impacted or channeled by the built environment. Because once you understand that, you can have go, no-go conversations 
And even better, you can have go-no-go conversations by type of drone and type of mission. And that's something, again, we're looking into with a, a partner we have in the United States right now. Fantastic. I should say for clarification, of course, for listeners who don't understand what the term urban air mobility means, it's actually passenger carrying drones or flying taxis, if you will. I mean, those people who are developing these, there is very obvious that weight, weight of passengers is a very, very important thing. They're proposing that if you turn up to fly on one of these things in the future, you will have to be weighed along with all the other passengers that fit in the you know two or three seats. So that kind of gives me the impression that these things are very light and much more so than with an airliner, they're going to be dependent upon local weather conditions, whether they can take off or land safely. Well, it's been very interesting um, becoming part of that dialogue because I think I think there are two or three things to unpack within this. One is we're working with a, a specialist company who certify aircraft already. And what they are trying to find for the US market, which I think is hugely relevant here in the UK, is what is the right level of certification for business drones? Because if you make if you make things too onerous, it will hold the market back. But if you make them too light, then you're not really acknowledging the potential risks. Um, and actually, I think building confidence and public acceptance is more easy if you have a at least a framework that people can understand where they can see that the essential components from um, aircraft certification programs are now being applied to each and every kind of drone. And then obviously, from my selfish perspective, there is a massive weather component to this. So being able to say you cannot fly drone X when wind speeds are greater than whatever, or the temperature is lower than whatever, or there is any risk of icing, or rainfall is going to be greater than. Because we know just through experience of flying, you know, uh, with us flying our own development drones, if you have a drone that is not suited for icing conditions, in 23 seconds it can be at your feet and it's a pile of components to build a new drone out of. That's the reality, which is, and I think it's essential that we address these things professionally, but not, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a collaborative way. Um, so I think that's a, a, a major part of how things could move forwards and how uh, people's confidence could be built. But I also think there is a, um, a part here where there are experts who have masses of experience of air traffic management. Um, we particularly been doing work recently with, with guys from Talis. Um, we've engaged with them here in the UK uh, and we're engaged with them um, in the US and, and across Central Europe. And some of the people that they've introduced us to have talked about this coming together of, of ATM, so air traffic management, um, where we our weather data is already being used for some R&D right now. And UTM, where, you, as you rightly said, Julian, you've got these much lighter weight aircraft that are susceptible, more susceptible to certain conditions. And then you have UAM, which has become this blanket term. And I think it's sweeping those two together and increasingly we're seeing them kind of moulded together. I think it's fair to say that no country has quite worked out how to manage drone use of airspace yet. Uh, I 100% agree with you. We've been looking at 
uh, instrumenting test ranges um, and getting involved in the NASA Grand Challenge to do, to do that in the US. And what's been really interesting is if you, naive chap that I am, I looked at the US and thought, of course, they'll have one federal view. No, they don't. So it's to me, it's just like the conversations we're having across Europe, which is nobody has yet clearly understood what the right level of engagement is. But I think everybody is is kind of growing up in this market now and saying, but there has to be engagement with the regulating authorities. Just doing stuff in that Wild West style, frankly, doesn't work. But that suggests to me that there's an opportunity here, that the UK actually could come up with something that was that balance you were talking about before, where it's not too onerous that you discourage innovation and basically innovation goes elsewhere, but at the same time isn't so light that people don't trust it. You, you, it's an opportunity here for the UK to find a balance where actually we can come up with something. Absolutely. Where innovative drone use, such as yours, can be deployed in a way that actually the public has confidence and civil aviation has confidence, actually, that, that, that this can not get in their way, basically. Absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think one of the things that we learned through hundreds of pages of documentation that we had to originally um, pile our way through was we were actually helped by the Federal Office of Civil Aviation in Switzerland. They knew that they didn't know how to certify what we were doing, so they worked with us to help us to be certifiable. They were actually pointing towards the things that we really needed to consider. So when we had to create uh, an emergency recovery system because we were flying through cloud and various other things, and we had to have hard and soft geofencing and automated systems which were dual redundant and all this kind of good stuff, it was because they helped us to understand why we needed to have that. So we engineered that into our solution. That knowledge has stood us in really good stead and at the moment puts us somewhere out the front, I think in terms of understanding the implications. And I agree with you strongly. Um, we, you know, I mentioned Talis earlier on, um, our engagement with them is, is exciting us because there are things like the Cranfield, um, the, the, their work with Cranfield Aerospace, the work with ATI, um, it's their conference next, next week. I think because I'm going to be there. I guess I'm going to be in Birmingham. I hope it is. <laughs> Otherwise I'll be a very lonely chap, but, um, the coming together of funding, of expertise, and then having the test ranges to actually work with is the right mix. And the opportunity here for the UK is to take steps forward into this. And I think the, in the same way as we're seeing this happening in the US, the, the, the only reason I keep putting the air miles into the US is they're moving faster than we're moving at the moment. Um, they're encouraging more. There is more access to funding for some of these projects. Um, but there's an appetite in Europe to pull these pieces together. And I think um, there is a great opportunity for the UK. I completely agree with you. So it sounds like the Swiss version of the Civil Aviation Authority basically saw you as a great learning opportunity for them. And they're still working with us because you can imagine we're talking now about regularly flying to, to six kilometers altitude. Our ambition ultimately is 10 because from a meteorological point of view, that becomes almost a, not an end point, but 
we would have achieved what we need to achieve in terms of instrumenting that environment and providing better forecasts. And, and, and perhaps that's also one of the, one of our little sort of, I suppose, bits of secret sauce for, for acceptance um, more widely by the public is that they, when I worked at the Met Office, we, we're all very critical of what weather services say to us. So we've always got a better opinion or our auntie knows of somebody who knows somebody or, you know, it's, there's an awful lot of that. And, um, and actually it's hard science, you know, you're modeling a, a complex and chaotic system of systems. But what's amazing is we've seen this step increase in the quality of particularly the short term forecasting you know, it doesn't have a massive impact on the long-term trending and so on. This is this is about the here and now. But as a company, we've always been set up for the here and now. The next day to two days max, really. Why? Well, because we generally get an idea of what things are going to be like. And as we approach some seminal event, it might be a towing forecast to move an oil rig out of a you know, manufacturing uh, dock. It might be a particular mission. You know, we might be the UN and need to go and deliver some aid you know people want to know forecasts for places right now the next couple of hours the next half a day and that's where we're seeing this impact and i think that for the public is, is a good thing Absolutely. and particularly when we see the yeah, sort of unmanned vehicles as well so you know with because people don't yet understand the thresholds when it's safe to have a an autonomously driving bus or car or whatever if you know are there times it shouldn't be allowed to to leave the garage. Um, so all of these things, you know, we're dealing with insurers around these kind of issues right now. And uh, we can see that they're trying to understand where the risk is so that they can then insure the premises. Given the public debate we've had in the UK around drones, which I think the the incident at Gatwick in which no drones were caused, eventually discovered has, has sort of poisoned the debate in, in many respects. So given that, mm -hmm. it's a backdrop, if you explain to people you want to send drones 10 kilometres up in the air, mm -hmm. they're likely to run for the hills. Well, they would if you weren't authorised to do that and if you weren't putting in notices to airmen, um, because I too would run for the hills uh, if that was the behaviour. Uh, we've all seen the kind of lunatics on, on YouTube doing mad stuff and basically crashing back out of the sky. And Whilst that might make for good TV, it's not a very clever thing to do. Um, I think there's actually a massive opportunity here for other technologies that are emerging. So the digital identification of the individual flying the aircraft. So in the past, I've dealt with things like digital ID in a different setting, sort of trading rooms, dealing rooms, this sort of thing, where it's essential to know that I'm really me and where I am and that I'm authorised to be accessing what I'm accessing and so on. So there are ways which are non-invasive and completely healthy um, which allow an individual with thumbprint, facial recognition, video, one-time codes and so on to be definitely themselves, definitely alive and definitely flying a specific drone. In the same way, you have technologies like blockchain, which allow you to store an immutable record that that person at that time was flying that drone in that place. Now, I think that's fabulous because I actually do believe that there has to be a right for enforcement. If someone is being a nuisance, you have to be able to identify that person and take them out of the sky. And it is not feasible to look at aggressive measures to overcome this, you know, this idea that you can take a shotgun and blow a drone out of the sky. Oh. 
really. Um, anyway, so moving swiftly on um, and getting out of my, you know, off my little box and preaching at everybody. But I think, um, so I think firstly that kind of technology and then I think that technology extends, which is stopping spoofing. Because in our case, we actually want to know that the data we're gathering and that makes it to our models is our data gathered in that place at that time by this sensor. Because then what you're storing is a quality record of quality data. And that becomes essential for any form of life and limb planning, whether that's aviation, transport, highways, logistics, or whether that's defence and border control and so on. In any setting where people really are at risk if, you've got, if you're getting it wrong or if somebody intercepts your data and messes with it, I think it's really important that these supporting technologies are encouraged and it's, you know, I find it really um, reassuring that the larger UTM players are absolutely all over these topics. Yeah, I should point out for listeners, by the way, that spoofing is about illegally tampering with GPS signals so that nobody quite knows exactly where they are. Uh, and that, of course, is a, a much, much bigger issue than drones and one absolutely. that interests the, uh, interests the police for a whole range of reasons. Now, I mean, you're, you're talking about such a fantastic range of benefits, particularly, obviously, to, to business, whether it's airports or other forms of logistics. You mentioned oil rigs. Uh, and you can see the applicability of all those things. But coming back slightly to the, to the issue around public acceptance, around the mm -hmm. public debate. So we have the proposals from the government around digital ID, the registering drones, etc. So that is kind of underway or in mm -hmm. progress, albeit at the very early stages of that. Do you think that for public acceptance of wider use of drones, particularly beyond visual line of sight or in and around airports, that what we're going to need to do is to get out there examples of the benefits that drones bring, which consumers can more readily understand than that somebody moved an oil rig in time? Well, I think there are two aspects to that. Um, and one which, I, again, I became sensitised to uh, during my time in the Met Office was when you're looking to communicate anything to the public in general, um, messaging is everything uh, and complexity is, is the enemy, absolutely, because um, things become hypothetical and hard for people to apply and therefore they don't. Why should they think hard about something if you haven't explained it in a way they can consume? Um, so I think that's one thing. The messaging has to be simple, and yet the topic is complex. So there's the same struggle as I, you know, used to encounter with with weather data in general. Um, I think also, in terms of of winning hearts and minds, there are some completely lunatic ideas about what people think drones are going to be used for, and some of them are getting funded, uh, which I find amusing and interesting. Um, but I think when things calm down a little bit and we get less of the bonkers use cases and we get more of the practical use cases, I think it'll just become more normalised. Because it, it, the I've, I've yet to really believe that people are going to buy a pizza and pay somebody a whole lot of money to have infrastructure interrupted in order to get you know get your dominoes to you five minutes quicker than you know or either that or you, you, or you maybe you could do with a walk to the pizza shop like me you know because um, I shouldn't be sitting still as much as I do so you know without trying to be disrespectful to some of the use cases I think 
we do need to get a bit of a, of a grip in the messaging, which is there are real things that really matter. And then there are hobbyist things, which again are fun. And I think people should be allowed to enjoy. Um, but I'm also aware, again, of speaking to a, uh, a US senator uh, on the last trip. And I asked him about drones because we we're talking about technology. And he's, he's an advocate, right? an act, a real supporter. Uh, in Washington State, and he said the thing that was really difficult is where people are buzzing his house because he's a senator and because they currently can. And so, to me, I think there's some give and get here. We have to think about, I'm not for one second saying we should be heavy handed or anti drone, I'm quite the opposite, but I do think that we don't want the few to spoil it for the many. So, I think some of the messaging here has to be we're mature enough to know. That there have to be measures to stop that antisocial behaviour, and I do think that comes down to the approach, for example, like the digital registration of the individual who's flying the aircraft, even as a hobbyist. Yeah, I think drones, like pretty much any new technology, can be abused by a minority if they want to. Absolutely, uh, and it's really, really important that Tech UK and uh, and others in the drone ecosystem emphasise all the great things that actually can be done with drones Absolutely. and we keep discovering more new things that they're really applicable for. I mean you're talking, you know, you're, as a company you're, you're doing highly localised weather data collecting, all these sensors going up 3, 6, maybe 10 kilometres. As you say balloons don't cut that, so it's really hard to see how you could do that in any cost effective manner if it weren't through drones. You couldn't certainly send helicopters up to do that. Absolutely, and, and there are a number of use cases as well that we've, what's lovely now is as we're maturing, um, more use cases are coming to find us rather than us naturally, because we don't know what we don't know until somebody comes to us and says, oh, hang on a minute, could we use your drones to do X? And we're finding cases now where the drones are replacing other large pieces of kit, in some cases, you know, instrumented aircraft are being replaced by drones. So, you know, if you're trying to do a flyover noise test for your aircraft, you've re-engined your, you know, civil airliner. Instead of flying a, um, a corkscrew pattern with a Cessna with lots of instruments on it and all the danger of having the small aircraft in the big aircraft space, you have something which can very quickly scan the atmosphere in a way which is required to be um, compliant with FAA regulation and then we're back on the ground and in the box. It's marvellous. And it, it, we'd never have thought of it. But I think it's those things that that's where we, you know, every day is interesting. We get sort of, tend to bounce out of bed in the morning to see what the next thing is, to be honest. Well, that's fantastic. If only more people could get out of bed in the morning <laughs> thinking, wow, I wonder what today brings. Absolutely. And the great thing about the example you've given is it's not just that it's back down on the ground again. It's actually packed away in the boot of a car. Absolutely. And I think this is... We're seeing now, in fact, yesterday I was with um, Plymouth Marine Laboratories. So, you know, closer to home for me, um, only, only a short, short sort of half an hour drive from home. And um, the reason it was brilliant to be with them was we were talking about flying off the back of uh, research vessels, being able to better understand marine conditions um, and the, uh, the near shore conditions. And then whether, because our... Uh, the drone that we're um, delivering next month will fly to six kilometres. It's also a very, it's a very powerful hexacopter. Um, 
very stable, does all the things we need it to do. But now we're being asked whether could we carry additional sensors? And we, we currently have a, a drone we call the XL, which can carry us sort of one to one and a half kilogram sensors to do things like air quality monitoring, um, PM10, that sort of thing. Um, well, our new one will be able to carry a rather heavier payload. And this, of course, then we're getting into this miniaturization of instrumentation, atmospheric chemistry. You know, I just sat, and sat at the feet of these giant people who know marvelous science that I don't, who are explaining to me why it would be wonderful to have this flexible platform that you can pop in the flight case, get on the back of the boat, do your business, come back, and then do exactly the same on a field study on the shoreline. So you're absolutely right. I think the fact that we're neither limited to only that flight case option or only the fixed option, we're actually saying both things uh, should be certified for use and both things have different use cases. And sometimes they cross over, but generally, it, from our point of view, the, the Meteor bases and the drones fit very well that idea of having, for example, a national network. If we had 50 across the UK, our weather forecasting would significantly improve. If we had the same sort of density across the globe, then a global forecasting would significantly improve. So it becomes a, an exciting additive conversation and certainly a drum that we're out there banging quite loudly because uh, we'd love to see that come to fruition. And presumably if you get a, a country which is quite advanced in its thinking and sees this as something to grasp onto, yep. then when they do indeed adopt that kind of density and they improve the weather forecasting the way you're describing, other countries are going to look at that and say, why can't we have that? It's, it, to, to a degree, it's already happening. We, we had um, in, uh, in Switzerland, there is a, a TV channel called SRF1. And it's, if I was trying to draw a parallel, I'd say it's a little bit more serious. It's a bit more like our BBC. Um, not that I have anything against ITV or any other channel, um, especially if they'd love us to come and see them. So um, the guys at SRF, we also supply uh, Meteo data for their website. And when we drone enabled our forecast for Switzerland, we started forecasting things that they found really exciting. So we forecast um, many, many hours ahead, 40 plus hours ahead, things like water spouts on Lake Constance or villages that would have snow and villages that wouldn't have snow or static storms. So I think called lake effect, which is notoriously difficult to forecast. And they were so impressed, they came to see us and said, right, we'd like to make a movie about your company. Our drones, the future of weather forecasting. So we fitted in a series they made called Einstein, um, and wonderfully they then let us license their footage as well. So we ended up with a sort of double whammy that we were on the TV, uh, albeit um, in, in the you know, in German and in the Swiss market, but we were able to reuse those assets where they flew alongside us in cloud and you know saw our drones in action. And a picture is a thousand words. You know, it's marvellous for us when we're explaining to people what we do, that we can click on a video where a meteor base in a valley opens, a drone flies, and you're alongside it, and you're seeing weather data, and you're seeing enhanced forecasting. So, yes, it does have an impact, and for it to be noticed by a broadcaster is quite something. Actually, thinking of broadcasting as someone who used to work for the BBC, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, that actually the very notion of doing outside shoots changes a bit. Yep. If you actually know, in your example there, which village is going to have snow and which village isn't. 
Yeah, unless the snow were the attraction, you'd probably want to shoot in the one next door that didn't have the snow. So, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you know, if you have location people who very expensively hired a house or something, and you've yes. got lighting trucks and food trucks and everything else turning up, actually, if you're able to say, don't bother tomorrow, go and, do, go and shoot the stuff in the studio tomorrow, you don't want to do the location tomorrow because actually we can tell you what's about to hit that location. That's fantastic to know that. Absolutely. Absolutely, and it, and it's yet another one of the use cases that. So this is all about you know what you know one of the things that I think is a particular strength for us, is we're actually behaving like a weather service. We are a horizontal capability that delivers weather data and forecasting at a high level of granularity, and can drone drone enable that, drone enhance that, and and then we work with partners to say well here you are. Now play with these data, you know, and and it, it's amazing what happens because we're not competing, so therefore they can quite happily under NDA be sharing what they're trying to achieve, and we're able to say, well, if I were you, I wouldn't use the I wouldn't use the weather data the way you're using it. You know, we can give insight because we're nerdy and weathery, um, and then we see people create new products, and I think this is also part of the digital future here in the UK. Is we would love. To do more work that help the digital economy by people being able to leverage what we believe is a currently under leveraged asset you know we work closely with uk met office we love their science we're very good at getting their data and other data out of the door in formats that people can use and you compliment totally so we're we're, we're actually leveraging a nationally owned asset in, in a sense you're building upon the Met Office's world-renowned expertise. Totally, totally, and um, and they really are. Yeah, from my time working with them, travelling the globe, they are respected all over the world. Well, that's fantastic, and I think that's probably a great place to end, actually, Sam. So thank you for that. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you found that as informative as I did. To find out more about this and other things that Tech UK are dealing with, head over to techuk.org or otherwise follow us on Twitter.